Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the gospel according to Matthew. Today we will be in chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. Now, when you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? Perhaps you think of an illustration of him, stoically looking upward with beams around him. Or maybe he's in prayer. Many might think of him holding a lamb with a shepherd's crook in his hand. Or maybe you think of him suffering on the cross. There may be a few who think of the furious Jesus, throwing over money changers' tables and pronouncing judgment. Our text today will give us two complementary but very different pictures of Jesus. The first is a warning. Uh, It is the furious Jesus recording a woe of judgment to those who have refused to repent. And this is an image that most of us shy away from and would prefer to forget. The other is a well-known text describing Jesus as meek and lowly, inviting the heavily burdened to come to him for rest. And both of these sides of Jesus are important, but they're not contradictory. Now, someone might be characterized, for example, let's just say as being very gracious, but every now and then uh, he might lose his temper. He kind of has like a a Jekyll and Hyde type uh, mentality. That's not the conclusion to draw from these back-to-back descriptions of Jesus. Uh, They're going to be different, and yet in some way they work together. Jesus isn't changing his mind or going back on who he was earlier. The second section, which extends the gracious invitation to come to him, is, is all the more pertinent and significant in light of the severity of judgment for those that uh, reject his offer. So, as I read our text for this episode, uh, keep your eye out for how these differing snapshots of Jesus complement one another and uh, fit together. I'll be in Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
The first section continues the message we considered last time about the failure of Israel to respond properly to the significant moment that lay ahead of them. The moment hadn't quite looked like what some, particularly like John the Baptist, had been expecting. But it was all a part of God's plan. Jesus is the Messiah. John is the forerunner. These people... Jesus and John aren't the weak links in God's plan of salvation. Uh, The problem is with the people's lack of reception uh, of, of the kingdom. Again, from last time, John had heard about the deeds of the Messiah, and though things didn't match his expectations, and so he had serious questions, he nonetheless sends ambassadors to find out the truth. So in terms of verse 25, he is one of the little children to whom God was pleased to reveal his gracious will. But others have uh, not just heard about the deeds of the Messiah, they have personally witnessed them. Uh, There's a bit of a narrative gap here. Matthew doesn't devote any attention to what actually happens in these cities in Chorazin and Bethsaida. But we can easily enough imagine and deduce what must have happened. There must have been uh, some sort of miracle ministry happening there, uh, something similar to what we read about in chapters 8 and 9, but without the necessary response of repentance. So these people had, uh, unlike John, they had actually seen the miracles right in front of them. But unlike John, they didn't go to Jesus for wisdom. These cities are promised worse judgment than Tyre and Sidon, uh, and then later worse than Sodom. Tyre and Sidon were both well-known Gentile cities upon whom the Old Testament prophets predicted strong verdicts of judgment. Sodom, of course, is well-known for its complete destruction. In fact, the means, uh, fire and brimstone, uh, remains a colloquialism for talking about an over-the-top message of condemnation. And yet, as bad as these judgment scenes are described, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum will have it worse. Now, this presumes a degrees of punishment view of condemnation. Evidently, there are levels of torment. We don't quite have Dante's Inferno or something like that, but there are degrees of punishment uh, that is presumed here. Now, the purpose is not to say that in the final judgment, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom will have a tolerable, comfortable experience. No, 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 no. Uh, the, the focus is on uh, the Jewish cities which saw Jesus' miracles but didn't repent. Their experience will be so bad that it will make even the famous and gruesome destruction of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom be tolerable in comparison. Jesus continues to paint the damnation of these cities in very dark colors in 1123. Uh, here he's citing, actually, from Isaiah 14, 13 to 15. Uh, and what's happening is that Jesus is taking uh, verses about the uh, destruction of the king of Babylon and applying them to the city of Capernaum. Uh, destruction here is, again, painted in very ominous colors, being brought down or as some of our manuscripts have it, being thrown down to Hades. And yet, as dark as this pronouncement of woe is upon uh, these cities, we shouldn't miss the cause of the judgment. Uh, They will go to hell because they did not repent. But recall the mission discourse from just uh, the last chapter. The disciples, with their message of repentance, would continue to the lost sheep of the house of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So, in a sense, the opportunity for repentance is still out there. 
Notice how Jesus says that if these wicked Gentile cities, uh, Sodom and uh, Tyre, um, had seen his miracles, they would have repented and it would have been a, and it would have been around today. But when you read the Old Testament predictions concerning these places, they sound like pure judgment oracles with no prospects of hope. But, argues Jesus, had they seen these miracles, they would have repented and so still have been here. This shows that even within these Jewish cities, whose judgment seems so certain, the possibility of repentance and forgiveness is still being held out. Uh, Jeremiah 18, 7-8 comes to mind, which says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation, concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do to it. Now, this sets us up for the offer of mercy presented in the next section. In verse 28, Jesus famously invites all those who labor and are heavy laden to come and rest. But though the cities mentioned earlier have seen so many miracles, they won't come to him. They, they don't have the spiritual eyes to see the significance of all of these miracles. Jesus expects that John, by way of contrast, will connect the dots by simply citing from Old Testament passages in Isaiah. John will hear the validity of, of what is happening, connect it with the Old Testament, and conclude that they indeed are at Israel's critical hour of the kingdom's arrival. And the person of John the Baptist from earlier in the chapter uh, powerfully illustrates uh, the difference between these cities and the little children. So think about it this way. What did John do when he was confused? and had his doubts. Well, he, as best as he could, took them to Jesus and got the wisdom that he needed. The theme in Matthew 11, 25 to 30, strongly revolves around Jesus as the true source of wisdom. The Father gives or withholds wisdom from whomever he wishes. But though everything is up to the Father, he has handed everything over to the Son. And so the Son alone reveals the Father. Well, having this uh, monopoly on spiritual wisdom, how does Jesus use it? Does he hoard his wisdom? Is he a miser, only willing to give it out to a privileged select few? No, he offers wisdom to whoever will come to him. Jesus' call is reminiscent of wisdom's calls. Uh, there are some parallels to the Old Testament, like the book of Proverbs. Uh, the strongest parallel, actually, is to Sirach 51. Now, some are concerned about this. After all, Sirach is not in the Protestant canon. Uh, now is not the time to dive into the issues of how we know which books belong as Holy Scripture. But let me just point out that this extra-biblical allusion, a reference to something outside of the canon, um, does not necessarily mean that the source is being validated as Scripture. For example, uh, there have been a couple times in the series uh, where I've made a subtle allusion to Star Wars. But that doesn't mean that I agree with the theology of George Lucas or that I view the script as inspired. Similarly, the reference to Sirach 51 should be confused with an affirmation of its canonicity. But notice how similar Jesus' words are to this text. It's actually the end of the book, so I'll read the last eight verses of Sirach. My heart was stirred to seek her, therefore I have gained a prized possession. This is wisdom speaking, uh, like we find in Proverbs. The Lord gave me my tongue as a reward, and I will praise him with it. Draw near to me, 
you who are uneducated and lodge in the house of instruction. Why do you say you are lacking in these things, and why do you endure such great thirst? I opened my mouth and said, Acquire wisdom for yourselves without money. Put your neck under her yoke, and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. See with your own eyes that I have labored but little, and found myself much serenity. Hear but a little of my instruction, and through me you will acquire silver and gold. May your soul increase in God's mercy, and may you never be ashamed to praise him. Do your work in good time, and in his own good time, God will give you your reward. So Jesus, uh, through this allusion to Sirach and to other themes and motifs in the book of Proverbs, is presenting himself as the very personification of wisdom, calling out in the streets, inviting people to come to him, put yourself under his yoke. He's not stingy. He's giving out a free invitation. Everyone, learn. The result will be, like we find in Proverbs and other places, life and peace. But even if the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin would come to Jesus as the source of wisdom, he would give them this life and peace. We might wonder what this light yoke means. Now, it is an image that implies work. Uh, The rabbis thought of Torah as a yoke. But we can compare the rabbi's yoke with Jesus' yoke in the very next account. In our next episode, um, we will look at that. Jesus' yoke is easy. Not in that it's not difficult to be Jesus' follower, but that he genuinely cares for people. He's not a slave driver. Uh, His way of obedience involves compassion and mercy. He gives wisdom to truly live, to truly find rest. And so he lovingly invites, even compels people to come to him and take his yoke. As as confused or misguided as people may be, um, even, if, even if you're in a position like John the Baptist, if you come to him, you will find the wisdom that you need. And in so doing, find the life that Jesus came to bring. The only place for real rest is under Jesus' yoke. Now, to refuse that yoke, that easy yoke, is, well, to be cast down to Hades, as he says earlier. Uh, Jesus' yoke is tolerable, but if you don't take it, the judgment will be intolerable. My prayer is that you would come to Jesus, the very personification of wisdom, as the only source of rest, and be saved from the intolerable day of judgment. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash